Once a week, I focus on a topic that's more spiritual in nature and directed to those of us who feel a belief in and a devotion towards Jesus Christ as a Savior and a Redeemer. I recently had an opportunity to speak in my local church congregation, and I want to share the talk that I gave. You might find it helpful as you think about those around you in need of the hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring. Have you ever been trapped in what seemed like a dire and impossible situation? Despite all your efforts, it looked as if there would be no way out and you would either be permanently stuck or perhaps even die, if not for a miraculous rescue. If you're not sure if you've ever been in a harrowing situation like that, I hope today to open your mind to the fact that we're all living in this situation. And except for an infinitely sized miracle, we would all remain completely stuck, remain completely lost to all hope of life and happiness and would eventually all die. Today I've been asked to speak on the question, in what ways is missionary work part of God's plan? When you hear that phrase, missionary work, you might picture young men or young women in their Sunday best and their name tags knocking on people's doors. Or you may be thinking that I'm about to tell you about all the things you should be doing more of to spread the gospel. Well, I'm not here today to give you any counsel on what you should be doing as a missionary. I'm here to inspire a very different view of this part of God's work and to awaken your heart to the amazing, life-changing opportunities that you may be missing right in front of you every day, whether with those who have never received the gospel in their lives or those who've once tasted the goodness of God but who now remain lost, starving, and dying right outside our doorsteps of comfort and safety. Missionary work implies that we have a mission. What's the mission? It is search and rescue of the lost, the wounded, the hungry, and the critically ill. Without search and rescue, we are all lost and will all eventually die as to the things of eternal life. We live in a world that would have been completely lost if not for a savior who came to deliver it from physical and spiritual death. His was the ultimate search and rescue mission that provided a pathway and a channel to navigate to safety where there had previously been no hope for anyone. All were lost, all would die, all would live in misery and captivity if not for his infinite gift and his infinite suffering. Although his gift made the way possible, most if not all of us would not even know how to receive that gift if it were not for the Savior's search and rescue teams, whom he first saved and then asked that they go out and bring others in that are lost. I'd like to share a story with you that you may be familiar with if you recently saw the movie The Finest Hours. What I'm going to share is the true story behind the movie, as written by Christopher Butkin in February 2016. Everyone said it was a suicide mission. Four young Coast Guardsmen ordered out to sea aboard a 36-foot wooden boat to fight hurricane-force winds and 70-foot waves, not even knowing if there were survivors on the broken-up tanker. But for the men sent to find the SS Pendleton, lost off Cape Cod, Massachusetts in 1952, staying ashore was never an option. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back, they used to tell us, says Andy Fitzgerald, 
Our job was to save people, and that's what we did. Despite the odds, Fitzgerald, who was 20, Coxwain, Bernie Weber, and crew, Richard Levice and Irvin Mask, carried out one of history's most daring naval rescues. Their heroics have now been made into the Hollywood movie, The Finest Hours, detailing the mission that saved 32 sailors who were just hours from certain death. The film recounts the devastating conditions endured by both crews. On the night of February 18th, a ferocious northeast storm slammed into the hulls of two tankers off the coast of Chatham. Both Second World War era ships had a fatal flaw in their design. Their welded seams were subject to fractures in rough seas, especially in cold water. One, the SS Fort Mercer sent a distress call before she broke up, and rescue ships zeroed in on her from Portland to Nantucket. The other, the Pendleton, traveling from New Orleans to Boston, split in two so fast that an SOS was impossible after radio equipment went down with the bow and eight men, including the captain. Ray Seibert stepped up as leader in his place. The vessel's two pieces were spotted by Chatham Coast Guard's radar, but the 33 men clinging to the Pendleton's drifting stern had no idea if help was on its way. Weber was the best coxswain left at the Coast Guard station and was asked to assemble volunteers for a rescue crew. His loyal engineman and best friend Mel Guthrow was due to go, but he was too ill. Fitzgerald jumped at the chance. I was the lowest class engineman there, and I didn't get to go out very much, he says. He never had really been in a rescue of any size, where you're really rescuing people's lives when they're in real danger. I was trying to figure out how to go on that rescue. I knew the boat well, and that Bernie knew those waters as good as anyone. He was a great coxswain. Never once did any of us think about our own lives. Our biggest fear was, where the heck would I go to the bathroom? The crew of the CG 36500 lifeboat knew their safest option was a longer route, avoiding the infamous Chatham sandbar, across which the storm was breaking in full fury. But Weber chose to save time by motoring over the bar, surrounded by a vortex of waves and currents just off the coast. The boat's windshield was quickly smashed, and the thrust of breaking swells tore the compass from its mounts. We lost our only means of navigation, says Fitzgerald. The swell was so high and the rains were lashing down, so it was difficult to see anything. But Bernie knew which way to head. We had worked out in our minds how the Pendleton may have drifted and headed as best we could do to that point. Fitzgerald says the crew felt compelled to continue, and not just because the station ordered them to. I could never have lived with myself if we hadn't tried, he says. All they had to assist them in locating people in the dark was their trusty searchlight. They strained to hear anything over the roar of the storm, but were finally drawn to the sound of twisting metal as the Pendleton shifted in stormy seas. My first thought when we pulled alongside it was they looked in a safer place than we were, said Fitzgerald. Our boat was being thrown about at an incredible speed towards the stern, and it was a struggle to stop us from being smashed by it. The men on board quickly threw down a ladder and began descending the 70 feet to our boat. I was at the bottom trying to hold on to it. One by one they came down. He adds, our boat was only made for 12. 
but Bernie wasn't having any of it. He knew it was too risky to keep crossing the bar, so we made a vow. It was all of us or none of us. As the boat filled, Pendleton crew member George Myers slipped as he tried to stand on the lifeboat. He was crushed between the two vessels before being tossed into the sea. I remember calling to George, but it was too late, Fitzgerald recalls. I begged him to hold on, but he couldn't. I can still see his face. As they began to pull away, the Pendleton listed over. Without a compass, the men struggled to find the harbor. Bernie said he was going to just head for shore and that we probably wouldn't get back into the harbor, Fitzgerald says. He shouted, I'm just going to beach the boat and everybody will jump off. Yet somehow they spotted a red channel marker for the harbor entrance and Weber alerted the station. At the dock, the town was out in full force to help bring the men ashore. There was no applause, just quiet disbelief. This is our search and rescue mission as members of Christ's fold. It may look impossible. We may feel completely under-resourced. Just in your local area, you're probably just a few thousand that have been sent on a rescue mission to hundreds of thousands or maybe millions with a lifeboat that may appear to only hold a few people. Like the rescuers in our story, we may not even know how to get out of the harbors of our lives to rescue others. But we can choose to answer the distress call and go out. And if we can allow the Savior to kindle a fire of love in our hearts for those who will die if we don't step off of our shores of safety and go after them, He will show us similar amazing rescue opportunities that will change our lives and the lives of those we save. I'd like to share one more story by Jane B. Malin that illustrates the work that God's doing through missionary work. The day school was out at the beginning of each summer, our family went to our ranch in Wyoming. It was there with my parents and brothers and sisters and a few cousins mixed in that I learned about family loyalty, love and concern, birth and death, that one must finish a job once it's started, and to quote my father, there are only two things important, the family and the church. One year, my father was waiting for us as we arrived. He said he had a big job for my brother Clay and me to do that summer. I was about 12 at the time, and my brother was two years older. Pointing to the field by the side of the house, my father said, Do you see all those lambs in that field? I'll share the money we get for the ones you raise when we sell them in the fall. Well, we were excited. Not only did we have a significant job to do, but we were going to be rich. There were a lot of lambs in that field, about 350 of them, and all we had to do was feed them. However, there was one thing that my father hadn't mentioned. None of the lambs had mothers. Just after shearing, there was a violent storm that chilled the newly shorn sheep. Dad lost a thousand ewes that year. The mothers of our lambs were among them. To feed one or two baby lambs was one thing, but to feed 350 is something else. It was hard. There was plenty of grass, but the lambs couldn't eat grass. They didn't have teeth. They needed milk. So we made some long V-shaped feeding troughs out of some boards. Then we got a great big tin wash tub, ground up some grain, and added milk to make a thin mash. While my brother poured the mash into the troughs, I rounded up the lambs, herded them to the troughs, 
and said, Eat. Well, they just stood there looking at me. Although they were hungry and there was food in front of them, they still wouldn't eat. No one had taught them to drink milk out of a trough. So I tried pushing them towards the troughs. Do you know what happens when you try to push sheep? They run the other way. And when you lose one, you could lose them all because others will follow. That's the way with sheep. We tried lining up the lambs along the troughs and pushing their noses down in the milk, hoping they'd get a taste and want some more. We tried wiggling our fingers in the milk to get them to suck on our fingers. Some of them would drink, but most of them ran away. Many of the lambs were slowly starving to death. The only way we could be sure they were being fed was to pick them up in our arms, two at a time, and feed them like babies. And then there were the coyotes. At night, the coyotes would sit up on the hill and they'd howl. The next morning, we would see the results of their night's work, and we would have two or three more lambs to bury. The coyotes would sneak up on the lambs, scatter the herd, and then pick up the ones that they wanted and go after them. The first were those that were weak or separated from the flock. Often in the night, when the coyotes came and the lambs were restless, my dad would take out his rifle and shoot in the air to scare them away. We felt secure when my dad was home because we knew our lambs were safe when he was there to watch over them. Clay and I soon forgot about being rich. All we wanted to do was to save our lambs. The hardest part was seeing them die. Every morning we would find five, seven, ten lambs that had died during the night. Some the coyotes got and others starved to death surrounded by food they couldn't or wouldn't eat. Part of our job was to gather up the dead lambs and help dispose of them. I got used to that, and it really wasn't so bad until I named one of the lambs. It was an awkward little thing with a black spot on its nose. It was always under my feet, and it knew my voice. I loved my lamb. It was one I held in my arms and fed with a bottle like a baby. One morning, my lamb didn't come when I called. I found it later that day under the willows by the creek. It was dead. With tears streaming down my face, I picked up my lamb and went to find my father. Looking at him, I said, Dad, isn't there someone who can help us feed our lambs? After a long moment, he said, Janie, once a long, long time ago, someone else said almost those same words. He said, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Dad put his arms around me and let me cry for a time, and then went with me to bury my lamb. It wasn't until many years later that I fully realized the meaning of my father's words. I was pondering the scripture that says, For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of all mankind. As I thought about the mission of the Savior, I remembered the summer of the lambs, and for a few brief moments, I thought I could sense how the Savior must feel, with so many lambs to feed, so many souls to save, and I knew in my heart that he needed my help. I'd like to ask you to think for just a minute and to remember when you first felt the saving grace of the Savior's power deliver you from the awful darkness you may have lived in for years. 
Can you feel the freedom, the happiness, the joy, and the hope of being one of the rescued? God promises to fill our cup full as we give to others what we have received. He so desperately loves his children, and he pines to save every one of them. But he needs a daring rescue team who is willing to brave the dark and the cold and the storms of this world to do the impossible. He needs our hands to lift his tiny lambs into our arms, one by one, and feed them. One by one, he always does his work. He sees that our time, our resources, and our efforts may look insufficient to make a difference at all. But he gives a promise in the story that we hear of him feeding the 5,000. When asked to feed 5,000 and the disciples asked him how they would do that, he asked one question, what do you have? And then he said, bring it to me. And he multiplied what little they appeared to have and made it not only sufficient for the entire multitude, but more than sufficient to be able to feed everyone. He multiplies our gifts and our efforts and does miracles with it. We serve the God of the impossible and love makes all things possible. God's love for us is so deep that he sent his very best son as a sacrifice to save us. He came on an impossible rescue mission. He needs us to bring his lambs to him. Will you step off the shore for an adventure? Like Bernie Weber, the Savior can be your compass and your guide to lead as many home if you're willing to allow them onto your lifeboat.